Good evening. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, Atlanta's Evening News. The phone number is 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Ton to cover today with the Democrats going into Iowa. Amy Klobuchar announcing in, um, where was she, Minnesota, in, in a blizzard, no less, that she blamed on global warming in February. Uh, among other things. Uh, also, Republicans in the state legislature, some of them, not all of them, the governor is opposed, it appears, as is the lieutenant governor, but some of the Republicans floating attacks on Netflix and iTunes and Hulu and Xbox One games and Amazon Prime and all of that. We will get into the details there as to why they want and what the lay of the land looks. But before we get to that, we do need to spend some time with the Democrats. Uh, Elizabeth Warren was in Iowa over the week in, as was Cory Booker. Booker, of course, is trying to play Mr. Nice Guy. Elizabeth Warren is trying to be progressive, radical Elizabeth Warren. Here's Elizabeth Warren on the campaign trail from Iowa this weekend. The middle class squeeze is real and millions of families can barely breathe. It is not right. The Trump administration is the most corrupt in living memory. But even after Trump is gone, it won't do just to do a better job of running a broken system. We need to take power in Washington away from the wealthy and well-connected and put it back in the hands of the people where it belongs. I mean, all, all good liberal Democratic rhetoric, I suppose. Uh, she's contrasted on the campaign trail with Cory Booker, who decided to be the Mr. Nice Guy on the campaign trail. Cory Booker out there saying essentially that um, that we they can ignore Donald Trump, that uh, they've got to find a way to reconnect to people. And trying her best, or trying his best, I guess I should say, uh, to to be as Barack Obama-esque as possible. Then there's Christine Gillibrand. Listen to this from Christine Gillibrand. She is the senator from New York who replaced Hillary Clinton in the New York Senate. You campaigned on access to Medicare. You've signed on to Bernie's bill for a single-payer plan. Um, one of the debates we've had recently is around what happens to private insurance. Should ending private insurance as we know it be a Democratic Party goal? And do you think it's an urgent goal? Oh, yeah. It is a goal and an urgent goal, but let me explain. I ran on Medicare for All in 2006 in my upstate New York two-to-one Republican district. And the reason I ran on that message was because I listened first. I traveled around the district, asked people, what's on your mind? What's your worry? Overwhelmingly, they said, I'm worried about access to health care. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that was their overwhelming in a in a Republican. I'm, I'm sure it was. So she wants to get rid of private insurance. Now you've got Elizabeth Warren also said on the campaign trail that she wasn't sure Donald Trump would even be a free man by 2020. And then Amy Klobuchar, Klobuchar let's listen to a bit of her announcement uh, from over the weekend during this blizzard. You know, I do have to give Amy Klobuchar credit. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, who is under a series of attacks from Democrats saying she's not a nice person to work for, even though Republicans like her. In fact, that's one of the Democrat attacks is that Republicans like her. Therefore, she can't be trusted. Um, So Amy Klobuchar, she makes her announcement in uh, Minnesota 
and she does it during a blizzard, and she started the event on time. I guess when your staff is scared of you, they're willing to keep things on time. So today, on an island in the middle of the mighty Mississippi, in our nation's heartland, at a time when we must heal the heart of our democracy and renew our commitment to the common good, I stand before you as the granddaughter of an iron ore miner, as the daughter of a teacher and a newspaper man, as the first woman elected to the United States Senate from the state of Minnesota, to announce my candidacy for president of the United States. Now, I wonder if she'll wind up like Tim Pawlenty, the Republican governor of Minnesota, who kind of fell flat. I mean, when, when the big attack from Democrats is that she is liked by Republicans. You kind of see how the Democratic primary situation is going. There is a problem there in the Democratic primary that they're going to have to come to terms with. And there's some new polling out on this that that all of us, Democrat and Republican, should find enlightening. So here's the polling out. It shows that your average Democrat voter actually wants the party to moderate its tone in 2020. Don't, don't run off the road laughing at this. This, this is actual, this is substantial good polling out. Multiple news organizations are having, have the same data from their own polling. It shows that uh, most Democrat voters actually want the Democratic party to moderate in 2020. Uh, they actually worry that they will be unable to win in 2020 if they go too far left. The problem is that Democratic primary voters are very, very angry with the president and very much want to move to the left. They, they are very, very progressive. Now, how does all of this play out? Well, I think that the progressives in the Democratic Party are going to learn the lessons those of us who are conservatives in the Republican Party learned over 2008 and 2012. What happened? In 2008, you had a pile of candidates. Uh, you had Fred Thompson, you had Mitt Romney, you had Rick Santorum, you had um, uh, Mike Huckabee. You, you had a good pile of candidates, and maybe what Santorum was 2012. Anyway, you had this pile of conservative candidates running, and John McCain was able to run to the left of all of them, closer to the center, uh, and say, straight talk, express interest. And the media loved him, and the Republican money loved him. And he was able to win because the Republican conservatives were so fractured and divided amongst themselves with Mitt Romney, seemingly the guy for conservatives, although he couldn't. I, I was not a Romney supporter in 2008. I thought he was disingenuous. I think I've been proven right on that. Uh, he wasn't as conservative as he claimed. Uh, McCain won the nomination, shutting out the conservatives. So then you fast forward to 2012. And in 2012, you have this massive pile of conservatives in 2012. You have. Of, uh, Mike Huckabee, again, you, you've got all of these people piling in uh, to the Republican primary. Huckabee gives Mitt Romney a run for his money in 2012. All of these other candidates running as conservatives. And Romney, instead of being the conservative in two, as he was in 2008, in 2012, uses the John McCain playbook to run up the center and captures the Republican money, captures the Republican centrists and moderates. And so all the conservatives are fractured and, and broken and he runs up. And then you have 2016. And uh, to a degree, Donald Trump wins the Republican primary by bringing new people into Republican primaries. The conservatives, you've got a 2000 person field. They divide themselves up between Rick Santorum and Mike Huckabee again and uh, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and, and on and on and on and on it goes. 
And Donald Trump is able to bring new people in. He's able to pull enough off of other candidates. Uh, Jeb Bush thought he was going to be able to use the Romney and McCain strategy. It didn't work. And you wind up with Donald Trump. I suspect that the Democrats are going to wind up in a similar situation this year where they actually are going to have a more moderate candidate. The, the, the drip, drip, drip of negative information about Joe Biden that is pouring out suggests to me that Democrats are most worried about him getting in. There actually is a story out today that Democrats privately say Joe Biden has nothing left to give, nothing to offer them. The the former vice president of the United States, according to these Democrats, has nothing to give. They're more worried about Joe Biden moderating his tone. And, and it's the same with Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota. Uh, you, you have Elizabeth Warren out there going bombastic, and you have Cory Booker out there trying to be the, the centrist, uplifting Obama guy. It, it tells you how they see the race. Elizabeth Warren has a real problem, and it's what we saw on the campaign trail this weekend with her. She has got to say some bombastic things and do this anti-system, they're out to get you, drain the swamp sort of stuff that Trump did to try to galvanize progressives. Again, just listen to Warren one more time. This is her message going forward. The middle class squeeze is real. So the middle class, they're out to get you in the middle class. And millions of families can barely breathe. It is not right. And millions of families are struggling. The Trump administration is the most corrupt in living memory. Uh, right. This is playing to the base. And they love it. But even after Trump is gone, it won't do just to do a better job of running a broken system. And see, this this is going to be her juxtaposition with people like Joe Biden is that put her in charge and she can do better. Biden presided over a broken system. Now, then she goes on to say, and I don't have this audio clip. It was picked up by um, a, a Van Hilliard or Von Hilliard at MSNBC. I was actually on MSNBC last night with Casey Hunt talking about this, where she says that she doesn't even think Donald Trump will be a free person in 2020. And why is she saying stuff like this? Well, in addition to playing to the base and segmenting herself against people like Kamala Harris, Kristen Gillibrand, Cory Booker, no one's talking about her American Indian stuff today. They're all talking about her saying the president may be arrested by 2020. It was intentional on her part to distract everyone from the American Indian story. Everybody's now moving on from that story because of all the bombastic stuff she said over the weekend in Iowa. It's intentional on her part and twofold. One, it gets her beyond the American Indian story, and it also finds her a way to differentiate herself from Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and the like. I don't actually think it's going to work for Elizabeth Warren, but there are signs that the president's team wants Elizabeth Warren to do well. The president focusing all of his ire on Elizabeth Warren and the Warren team baiting him, trying to get him to engage with them, both sides thinking that'll help Warren if the president gives attention. And frankly, there's enough polling data out there to suggest Elizabeth Warren isn't the strongest Democratic candidate. So expect the president to start going after her even more to help her get the Democratic nomination. So I'm in the news today. I have done something. Some of you will like, some of you will be disappointed by, some of you will be really angry. I know because I'm getting the hate mail. Uh, there, It is a no-win situation in American politics today. I, I have written today... I will be voting for the president in 2020. Uh, I will be voting for the president. I have informed both the president and vice president of this. 
that I will be voting for them. And I understand that there is, I've gotten a lot of emails from people through the resurgent. In fact, my goodness, uh, had some donors just send angry emails today demanding refunds on their, on their support of the site. Uh, some people very disappointed that the character issue, listen, I, I'm, I, I get the issues. I, I share the issues. Uh, I think though that, uh, there are character problems on all sides. And at this point, the president is no longer a hypothetical. He's actually has a record that he can run on. And I like that record more than I like what the other side is proposing. And as much as he has terrible character flaws, the other side does too. Uh, theirs may not be as in your face as the president's character flaws, but they're absolutely there. Uh, I'm sorry, but I think, uh, if you're okay with killing a child, uh, as they exit the womb, that is a character flaw in addition to a bad policy issue. And the president doesn't have those. So I said I would support him in 2020. I've informed him. I've informed the vice president. They're they're quite pleased. It is a big news story today, of all things, since I helped start the Never Trump movement in 2016. I've gotten a lot of angry emails from people. What I find most interesting, I understand the disappointment from people of faith who just don't think they can. I, I totally get that. What I find most interesting are the angry, angry progressives who are sending me really nasty notes today. Uh, who tell me that that they thought I was reasonable. I was a reasonable conservative. And apparently, definitionally, a reasonable conservative is someone who hates the president. Uh, and, but you know what? Here's the thing. If, if Donald Trump weren't on the playing field, progressives would still be angry with whoever the Republican was, and, and they would still be defining reasonableness based on hating that person. And, and the only way you can get in their good graces, it very much is religious, the only way you can get into their good graces is to abandon all of your convictions. And, and I'm sorry, I, I got lots of issues about the president. I think character still counts, and I don't think he has good character. Um, but I don't think the Democrats do either. And if I got to choose between the lesser of two evils here, I'm going to choose the one with the guy who doesn't think killing kids when they're born is a good thing. I, I'm going to go with the guy who thinks that tax cuts are good and this Green New Deal thing is atrocious. I'm, I'm going to plant my flag with that. Um, uh, I'm not looking to persuade you. I'm just telling you uh, that's the deal today. When we come back, we're not even going to talk about that. We're going to move on. We got to talk about the shutdown. It may happen on Valentine's Day. have probably heard the issue we, we we'll get to the shutdown but but this i i, I want to go on so i can kind of check the box and say yes i have talked about this you you guys uh, i'm assuming have heard the stories about people getting smaller refund checks some people owing money uh how is this possible uh chris burns who is dynamicmoney.com uh is on wsb radio as well uh talks a lot about finance is a great finance guy he was on cnn this weekend talking about this i want to play just a, a bit of this exchange here um with um cnn and chris talking about what happened with the yeah, refunds first of all let's just admit it's it's terrible when you think you're going to get all this money back you already have plans for it right so folks already knew 
Uh, they're going to put a down payment on a house. They're going to pay off that debt. So this is really hard for a lot of people. But to understand why it happened, you have to actually walk back last year this time. And remember, at that point, Treasury was running around trying to figure out how in the world do we implement this thousand plus tax change that's just been passed by Congress. And one of the big pieces of that was changing the whole withholding system, okay? So back last February, a lot of people, most Americans saw some sort of little bump to their payroll. And for a lot of people, it was so small, it was almost laughable. Uh, if you made $70,000 a year, your average increase was about $40 a paycheck. And for most folks, that was kind of throwaway money. They said, uh, they didn't even really notice it, right? Maybe but if you take $40- Maybe it's an extra dinner out. I'm sorry, what, oh yeah, exactly. It's an extra dinner out, it's an at the movies, whatever it is. Yeah. But if you take that over the course of a year, well, that's $1,000, right? And so the, the hard reality of this, and this is not easy, is that most people, even though it feels like they've made less money because that tax return is 8% or the refund's 8% lower, well, they might have actually made more money over the course of the year, but it was so spread out, they don't notice it. And then when they get a few hundred dollars less on the refund, it feels like a punch in the mm -hmm. gut. Yes. So what's happening, and Chris Burns really laid that out very well on CNN over the weekend, and, and the CNN anchor was a little bit angry about it. And you're, you're hearing Democrats trying to undermine the tax law. Most Americans saw an increase in their take-home pay last year. And as Chris Burns was saying, it may have only been $40 per paycheck. But that $40 per paycheck added up over time. And the reason people are getting no refunds or smaller refunds this year is because their withholdings changed. Listen, when you get a refund from the IRS and it's a $5,000 refund, that means that you paid the IRS last year $5,000 more dollars than you should have. And they're not paying you interest when they refund it to you. They're just saying, oh, oh, sorry, you're withholding. You, you withheld too much. Here's your money back. It's, it's money you earned that the IRS kept. And so one of the things that the, the Treasury Department decided to do was to reassess the withholding so that they were withholding less from you per paycheck so that you shouldn't have a refund. You should never have a tax refund. If you have a tax refund, it means that you've been paying the IRS more than what you owed in taxes. And that's a bad investment because when the IRS gets that money, you can't do anything with it until you get your refund and they're not going to pay you interest on it. It's better you park that money somewhere, all of that money that you've been getting extra in your paycheck last year, park it in even a savings account and earn 0.0001% interest. You're still earning more interest on it than what the IRS is going to pay you for it. That's what happened. All of these complaints about people not getting tax refunds that were not big, the reason they're not getting those big tax refunds is because they saw it boost their paycheck last year. All the people who got the $1,000 checks uh, for, from the, the corporate tax cuts, everybody benefited from this. It, it's a nonsensical story of, of fake outrage when people are now suddenly livid that they're not getting the $5,000 tax refund, they're getting the $100 tax refund. Do you know why? It's because your paycheck got bigger last year because they weren't withholding as much. And that's a good thing. You had more money to spend last year because of the tax cut. It's just completely misrepresented by the media, so badly distorted. So with the shutdown... It appeared to not be likely on Thursday this past week. Uh, Richard Shelby, the senator from Alabama, 
came out and said they were very close to a deal. And then something fell apart over the weekend to the extent that you had this exchange between Chuck Todd and Mick Mulvaney on Meet the Press this weekend. So is it fair to say whatever Congress agrees, hands him, he'll sign. He just may not be enthusiastic about it. No, I, I don't think so. You're I, not ready to go there. No, I, you can't, can't definitive. We cannot definitively rule out a government shutdown at the end of this week. You absolutely cannot, and here's why. Okay. Let's say, for sake of this discussion, that the Democrats prevail, and the hardcore left-wing Democrats prevail. There was a Democrat congresswoman who put out a tweet yesterday about zero dollars for uh -huh. DHS. So let's say that the hardcore left-wing of the Democrat Party prevails in this negotiation, and they put a bill on the president's desk with, say, zero money for the wall, or $800 million, absurdly low number. How does he sign that? He cannot in good faith sign that. It takes a presidential signature for the that. spending bill. But can you imagine? So we may have a shutdown. And now there's Lindsey Graham coming out. This is the sticking point for the Democrats. This is where they're drawing the line in the sand. Many of you will be horrified by their line in the sand. It is they want to restrict the number of beds in the amnesty facilities. The Democrat policy preference is to allow people to leave the amnesty facilities and roam the country until such time as they have their amnesty hearing. Lindsey Graham, not a fan of this idea. Oh, no, he can't sign such a bill. Now, I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but I think that's the, the impasse we have. They're willing to give the president a little more money for the wall, but in return, they want to limit the number of bed spaces available to house violent criminals. This goes back to AOC's belief that I should be abolished. So the bottom line is, how can you get money for a wall and at the same time limit bed spaces for violent offenders and say you've solved the immigration problem? You're actually incentivizing more illegal immigration by reducing the bed space, and it undercuts any money you would get for a wall. He can't sign that bill. If that's the friction point, then we'll have a continuing resolution and we'll just keep talking. Yeah, they want to allow more and more illegal immigrants into the country instead of staying in, the, staying in the detention facilities. And that has become their sticking point. They have a cap. They want to cap the number of beds available. And that is just not going to be acceptable for the president. It's not going to be acceptable for the Democrats. Uh, it's going to be a real problem moving forward. And the Democrats, if we're real honest, they want the shutdown. What happened to the president's approval in the last shutdown? His approval tanked. The Democrats want a shutdown. Yeah, Charlie, Char, Charlie likes that they're starting to call Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez AOC. Uh, you know, let her be defined by that. I think that's fine. It's easier to say Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or AOC than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she really is starting to define the Democrats and Democratic leaders are starting to really bristle under her being defined. You know, they've walked back the Green New Deal thing, uh, the whole the, the paper that came out that said they wanted to pay for un, people who are unwilling to work. Uh, my my 13 year old wanted to know why are they willing to pay people who are unwilling to work as part of an environmental deal. If you follow their logic and it's actually they, they've been writing about how they need to incentivize people not to work. And the thinking is that if you stay home and don't go to work, that's less people using combustion engines to get to work, less people on public transportation, less people in the streets, less people consuming unneeded resources. We pay you to stay home and vegetate in front of the TV. You're not out there polluting all day. 
They want to do this, but they're walking it back. Some details on that when we come back. And on MSNBC, of course, they're already claiming if we don't do this, people are going to die. Uh, yeah, word of caution for all of you. When we come back, uh, I do want to move into this Netflix tax issue of the state legislature. There are some other issues in the legislature. We've also got people on hold. I, I will get to your calls as soon as I can. Uh, the phone number is 404-872-0750, wsb talk But the, this is just public service. I'm actually on my neighborhood's uh, next door site to put this up. I've been talking to a couple of friends of mine. Uh, right now, particularly if you live in the, in the ex-urban areas up in Cherokee County, uh, Forsyth County, uh, parts of Cobb and Gwinnett, uh, we've had this suburban invasion of coyotes. And if you're on the south side in particular as well, you've got the coyotes now. And some of the coyotes are breeding with wolves and moving south, and so they're bigger. This is pup season for coyotes. And I now know two people who've had coyotes come into their yards and play with their dogs and lure the dogs off to the pack because they're not abandoning the pups to go hunting. So they're luring animals to the pack uh, to for food. So... If you got a dog and you've got an invisible fence or something like that, make sure you're using it. Make sure you're watching your dogs. This is the season where the coyotes are out. And the only reason I'm thinking about this, in addition to having these conversations last week, I was on MSNBC last night and got home. And, you know, it was that misty, gross rain. Traffic was moving slow. I didn't get home until after 1030 last night, and I could hear the coyotes. And... I have not heard them in several months, and so it was a little bit startling to get out of my car last night and hear the coyotes uh, out in the woods, and it reminded me of this conversation I'd had. So I figured I'd better share that with you. Uh, just be advised, you got the coyotes out there right now. Make sure your pets are secure. Let's go to the phone. Scott in Athens, you're up first. Welcome. Scott, you there? Yes. Hi, Eric. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say that I think that you are missing the boat like almost everyone else on the tax changes in that, um, you know, if you. Oh, Scott, you there? Uh Oh, Scott, do me a favor and come back. It was not me. Someone hit someone hit a button. <laughs> Andrew's. Andrew's taking the blame for it. You were coming in too loud, and when he went to lower the volume on the phone, it disconnected you. So you call back, Scott, um, and now I've only got about a minute left, so I'm not going to go to anyone else. But, Scott, if you can call back before I get into anything else, I will come to you out of the next break. Okay. Well, let's see. Scott. All right, Scott. I'm going to see you. We've only got about 50 seconds. It's Andrew's fault. It's not mine. Go ahead and make your point. Okay, yes, thank you. So I think that we're missing the, the boat on the tax changes and that if you are a middle-class person, you have a, a good income, but a middle-class income, you have a nice middle-class house, and you give to your church, then you're still going to be making more for uh, itemized deductions than you would be for the standardized deduction. And if you've lost your personal exemptions, you're just in a situation where you're going to pay a much more taxes. And in my case, it's about $4,000. So I think there's a lot more people in that boat than, than is realized. There may be. And let me look up some data on that when we come back. And I apologize again for the, the phone call dropping on you, Scott. We'll, we'll look into that when we get back.
engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. To Steve's point, who Andrew hung up on. <laughs> it was an accident. Uh... Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Atlanta's Evening News on WSB, to Steve's point, uh, that he said some people it actually will be a tax increase. The standard deduction, they got rid of, the, you know, the, you had the exemption and you had the deduction. Now it's just one big standard deduction, more if you're married uh, than if you're single, obviously, because you've got a family, typically you've got a spouse. It should balance out. Ironically, though, Steve Steve has an interesting point, and it's one that some clergy have complained about in that they have changed the caps on charitable deductions. And if you are a regular tither at your church, you may not be able to take all of your tithing as a as part of even itemized deductions now for most people the overwhelming majority of people i did look it up in break and it, it is well over 97 percent of people the standard deduction will still give you a tax cut uh, but if you are an upper middle income uh, tight regular tither to your church there is a possibility when you use the itemized deduction to account for your charitable deductions, that it works as a tax increase uh, because you can't, you can no longer take as big a charitable deduction as you once did. Uh, everyone is basically being encouraged to use the standard deduction, and in that case, uh, 97% of people in the upper middle income tax brackets will get a tax deduction. So. There is the solution. Steve's got a valid point uh, for 2 to 3% of the upper middle income spectrum of people who pay taxes. Now, having clarified that, and again, I feel bad the line got disconnected, um, I want to move into the state of play in Georgia for Netflix and iTunes. It, you know, there are all these streaming services. You, you can almost pay double your cable subscription for your streaming services now you have hulu uh which i don't get you, you have hbo now you have espn plus you've got netflix you've got itunes you're about to have apple tv streaming uh, what else you've got amazon prime video you've got now youtube plus uh youtube whatever youtube tv you have your Xbox streaming services, your PlayStation streaming services. Walmart apparently has one, if I read that right. There are a bunch of streaming services out there now with video content, game content. Uh, you buy you buy songs, you, you go to Spotify, you listen to songs, you subscribe to a package where you can listen to unlimited songs. There's Pandora, you know, all of these things. And Republicans in the state legislature want to tax them because currently they're not taxed. And there are a bunch of lobbyists, and you should know that the lobbyists are big cable and phone companies. And the lobbyists and the cable providers want to tax these services, and they're convincing members of the legislature, including Jay Powell, who's the chairman of, I think it's Ways and Means in the House of Representatives, essentially the, the committee that finds the money to balance the budget, that this is the way to cover rural internet broadband. 
See, our legislature wants to find a way to incentivize building out the internet in rural parts of Georgia. One of the reasons they want to do this is because, as you may know, particularly if you're stuck in traffic in Atlanta, uh, the metro Atlanta area is increasingly at capacity in terms of what its roads can handle, what its sewers can handle, and the number of people it can handle. And they got to find a way to incentivize bringing jobs to Georgia and making it nice for people to live not in Atlanta. And that means rural Georgia needs some upgrades. So in, in this situation, what you have is the legislature trying to find money to push broadband out to rural Georgia. Now, part of this is necessity. It is very expensive to do satellite internet uh, relays. And those of you who use satellite broadband providers know it's not a great service. Uh, those of you who can avoid it like the plague uh, tend to avoid it like the plague. But for rural medicine, particularly rural telemedicine, they need fiber and high-speed broadband internet in order to connect, in order to do telemedicine in rural areas, to lower healthcare costs in those areas. But beyond that, they also need it to lure people out there. Listen, if you've got a family, your kids are going to want broadband. You are going to want broadband. You're not going to want dial-up speeds or speeds close to dial-up. And that is a disincentive for many people who are thinking, you know what, I could live an hour outside of Atlanta in a more rural part of the state and commute in or work from home on occasion. Uh, in people in the Lake Oconee area, where there, there's a big uh, move of people, particularly on the weekends, who go out to Lake Country, and there's terrible internet service out there, and, and it disincentivizes people wanting to move into those areas. When you get into South Georgia, where it's very rural, you can see the Milky Way at night, unaided by by a telescope or anything, you don't have good broadband coverage. And as a result, you have big companies coming into Georgia. They're thinking, well, we can't move here because of a lack of infrastructure. And as a result, everything gets clustered into the metro area still. So they want to find a way to build this out. It will help with schools. It will help with telemedicine. It will help with attracting jobs. It will help with attracting people. How do they pay for it? One of the solutions is for the haves to be taxed so the have-nots can have something. That is the solution. Many of those in the legislature who have an R next to their name used to have a D next to their name, and they're quite comfortable still economically behaving like the Ds. They don't want to uh, find ways, for example, for local EMCs to do it. They don't want to cooperate in, in trying to help new local EMCs spring up to do it, uh, electric membership cooperatives as uh, telephone or, or Internet membership cooperatives. Uh, they basically they immediately fall back on taxing. And you've got major lobbyists coming into the state for AT&T, for Comcast, for Charter, for Cox Internet, I guess. Um, they, all I read in the AJC is, is the lobbyists for all the major telcos and uh, internet broadband providers who exist are all coming in saying, hey, why don't you tax all of these things? Tax Netflix, tax iTunes, tax Hulu, tax Amazon Prime, tax Spotify, tax Xbox, tax PlayStation, uh, game downloads, all of these things as their way to pay for this. Now, let's just admit that let you just concede for the sake of argument, it is a good thing if we can expand broadband in those areas. I don't think we need to concede, even though we, we recognize it's a good thing, I don't think we need to concede that we got to find new means of taxing in order to make this happen. I think that's rather silly. 
and yet here we are with members of the legislature. Now, you should know in me saying this, and this is why I haven't even considered an action alert on this. This is a, a House uh, issue. The Senate leadership is not in favor of this right now. And the governor seems opposed to this. The governor supports building out rural broadband. I mean, heck, this is where he won the vote. It's not like he's going to write off rural Georgia. He's just not so sure taxing your Netflix is the way to give everybody broadband coverage. And he's also not sure that we need to just be giving people broadband coverage. Uh, there are other ways to go about doing this. And the governor's office, lieutenant governor's office, the Senate leadership, they want to explore these things. And I suspect that the House leaders... And in fact, the guys who write tax policy in the House need to be a little more careful in rolling this out um, before people get their backs up. There are ways to do this without seeing Netflix and iTunes and Hulu and the like get taxed. And maybe they should explore those options. Now, let's go to the phones here. Uh, Diego from Marietta, you're next. Welcome. Hi. Hi there. Um, I just want to say I really love your show. And, you know, I, I know you're talking about taxes. And, you know, one thing you mentioned earlier was the new Green Deal. And, you know, first of all, I think AOC is a very dangerous, you know, person on the left just because she's really popular, popular amongst young people like myself. I'm not a fan. I think she's is lacking some stuff um (laughs) putting it mildly yeah i mean you know i'm more worried about how taxes are going to be affected if you know god forbid any way you know this is passed you know if she if i'm like i said she actually is going to gain some support from people around my age sad to say but i mean you know not everybody has the mentality to realize that that's it's just how is that how so bad is uh, okay that? so this is going to blow your mind um according to the i i'm hang on one second i'm i'm i want to make sure i get my numbers right here i'm pulling it up okay uh so according to the national tax foundation and the hudson institute that, that have run these numbers uh right now our, our economy generates about 200 trillion dollars over 10 years in economic activity and federal and state taxation will consume 86 trillion of that 200 trillion dollars that the economy will generate over the next 10 years. That is uh, $86 trillion will be consumed by the federal government budget, state government budget, county government budget, local government budget. So then if you add in um, AOC's Green New Deal, which they're walking back. We, I got some amazing details on this we got to get to when we come back. But but that will cost over $100 trillion in the next 10 years alone for that one plan, leaving $14 trillion to reinvest in the private sector economy. That's not going to fly, folks, which is why the Democrats are scrambling. And it's an amazing scramble, complete with media coordination. We'll get into it when we come back.
You know, when Doug mentioned seeing Drizzle on the Jam Cam, I figured, you know, I better pull up the radar. I'm glad I did. Yes, yes, you get to have a weather radar reading with me. If you're headed out towards Alabama on I-20, you're going to run into rain. It's all light. Everything out there is light. The heaviest stuff is to the north of the city. Uh, Right now, uh, just south of the 575-75 split, north of the Brave Stadium Sun Trust to be named again stadium there is some rain it's headed into the roswell area the woodstock area holly springs you've been getting rain about to get some more out towards athens it is drizzly the winder area is free sugar hill swanee you've got rain there the 985 85 split uh when you get south of the city it is mostly clear everything is it's almost kind of funny it's like it knows where the interstate is 85 uh diagonally cuts through the state and all of the rain is north and west of 85 uh the Carrollton area right now getting the most rain south of i-20 north of i-20 it's the woodstock sandy springs roswell area that's about to get uh rain so there you have it um Doug says I should have won a spoken word Grammy for my radar readings. I try, folks. Next time I'll use $3 words to describe it as well. (laughs) Okay, so the Democrats are scrambling on their uh, Green New Deal nonsense. They really are walking back. But yeah, I got to play. Listen, I I have met Katie Turr several times. I've been on her show. She's very nice. She's she and I have been on MS uh, on Meet the Press several times on NBC. We've sat next to each other each time. Very nice. Uh, she is definitely on the left, uh, and she has a lot of views from the left and echoes folks on the left. I think more than the right buys into left wing conventional wisdom. And this is the latest from the left. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I think you have some some real reporting out there from experts, not just uh, analysts on television, but from actual experts at the UN, from the from the Donald Trump's own administration, saying how dire this is. Uh, the UN said we have 12 years before complete disaster. You talked to the representative of the Marshall Islands, and he's calling it what could amount to genocide if we allow things to go as they are. The reports aren't just hey, it's going to get bad. The reports are people will die, millions and millions and millions of people will die. And I think that there is an appetite among voters out there, especially Democratic voters and potentially uh, swing voters, to say, hey, let's do something about this now because it's it's going to affect our future. And, and there's, there's real economic damage that can happen as well. Billions of dollars mm-hmm. in economic damage from, from crops to, to deaths to losing oceanfront homes and businesses in, over the next century. Will more people die from climate change than died from net neutrality and tax cuts and and the Obamacare changes? Because I thought millions and millions and millions of people already died from those. By the way, did you know it, it's it's an objective fact that more people die when it's too cold than from when it's too hot? And they've been telling us for decades that we only had a decade left. I mean, we should all be dead now because, I mean, 20 years ago they were saying we had 10 years left. 10 years ago they were saying we had 10 years left. And now they're saying we got we got 12 years left. Uh, and the solutions always change. or The solutions are always the same. When they think it's going to be too cold, when they think it's going to be hot, too hot, everything is climate change. Listen, I, I fully accept, acknowledge, and embrace the idea that when you got as many billions of people, 7 billion people walking the planet, that it will affect the climate. Uh, that, that, that single population of people 
uh, with the the industry and everything else that yes we can affect the climate yeah i'm i'm totally willing to believe that uh what i'm not willing to believe is that we can't adapt uh what the left proposes what uh, uh alexandria ocasio-cortez and progressive propose is a complete annihilation of our way of life for negligible change in fact they want to do a whole lot of things that won't even affect climate change such as really paying people not to work uh, they want to ban cows. I saw Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, has changed his biogra- bio description on Twitter to senator who supports the rights of cows to fart. Uh, I'm with him on that. It's kind of nonsensical hysteria from the left right now on climate change. However bad they think climate change is, and, and let's just acknowledge and embrace the fact that it is religious zeal on their part. Uh, they are so committed to this because it has become secular religion. This is a, a faith belief on the left that something must be done to bring about utopia on earth now. That's what gets them there. But this idea that millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people are going to die if we do nothing, guess what? If we do everything, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people are still going to die. What are the trade-offs? Uh, we'll see. It is going to become the Democrats' core issue in 2020 this climate change idea. And and one of the things that they did is they released this white paper with their congressional resolution that showed what they really wanted to do. And it included banning farmers from raising animals. Farmers can only raise crops, getting rid of the combustion engine within 10 years, building coast to coast, high speed rail to get rid of air travel, banning airplanes. And now they're walking it back saying, no, 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 no. First they said the document was a forgery. And then when NPR said, wait a second, we got it from you, they're saying, okay, it was a, it was an initial draft. Um, what's so crazy here is the Washington Post and other media outlets are doing damage control to try to make it sound not nearly as bad as it is. For example, uh, the resolution talks about renovating every single building in the country to make them more efficient. And what the white paper says is that they're either going to renovate or they're going to tear down and rebuild. There's really no difference between the two. The white paper just clarifies it. And the media is going to great lengths to say, no, 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 it's it's not really that extreme when the language is still the same. The media is being dishonest here. And, and you know, when, when I wrote this morning, I, I'm endorsing the president and vice president's reelection. One of the things I pointed out is that a lot of my friends on the right, l- listen, the, the character issues don't go away. It's not like I'm suddenly fine with character issues. But I'm also realizing that there are a lot of people who are outraged by the president's character and the other side has terrible character, too. It's just they put on a smile and they don't go on Twitter tirades, but they're perfectly happy annihilating people's way of life, annihilating children at birth, um, doing all sorts of terrible things, forcing Christians uh, to to bake the cakes, etc. These are still big issues. And I'm not going to accept that someone who has a smile on their face doesn't have bad character because, oh, the president's a terrible person. Yeah, I, I don't care for the guy's character either. And then on top of that, you have the media willfully carrying water for the Democrats on these things. Look at how the media is willing to cover for the Democrats on this issue, for the for the media to say, oh, no, this white paper, it's not really part of the resolution. You can't consider it. They would never let a Republican get away with that. They would never let Donald Trump get away with that. 
And so many of my friends on the center right who still have hangups about the president, a lot of their beliefs are premised not just in his own character that they've seen, but also in misreporting and bad reporting from the media that amplifies it in ways that are unfair to the man. And the way the media is, is covering for the Democrats on this Green New Deal stuff is an example of that. We can't get honest, fair reporting from them because they're in the tank on these issues. To the phones we go here. Let's go to David in Woodstock. Welcome, David. How are you? I'm fine, Eric Erickson. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I just wanted to ask a quick question regarding the abortion law that was recently passed, allowing them to kill babies up to and shortly after birth. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if it's a trap. Uh, basically, the right has to respond now. I sure hope that the right responds. And uh, is the response going to be something on the federal level to try to overturn the state level? And if so, does that mean a review and a possible um, overturning of Roe v. Wade, which I think would be a great thing? Well, listen, I I think the way John Roberts has gone in the Planned Parenthood case out of Louisiana, we're probably not going to see the overturning of Roe v. Wade anytime soon. And if it was overturned, what would happen is that it would go back to the state level. And that's one reason we're seeing the rise in these laws at the state level. The left is more and more convinced the Supreme Court is going to scale back Roe v. Wade. There's no evidence for it, uh, you you should note. Uh, John Roberts siding with the left on these issues on the court now that Anthony Kennedy is gone. But they think it's coming, so they're trying to lay the groundwork in progressive states to make abortion a right at the state level. Many of them have state-level equal rights amendments, and they're relying on uh, the state-level ERAs to to hide behind on that. The issue here would be what would the federal government do? Ben Sass has introduced the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, which would uh, require that if a infant survives an abortion or they exit the womb before being aborted, they can't be killed or must be saved, and the Democrats are blocking that. So I don't think we're actually going to see much progress from the right to combat this issue.